This is The Rooted Podcast, a conversation about the Christian worldview and its implications for every part of life. The Rooted Podcast is hosted by Steve Royce and Brady Johnson. Together, they have over two decades of experience in the business and tech industries and share a desire to help others filter all of life through the Christian faith. Thanks for listening to The Rooted Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Brady. And on this episode, we're going to be taking a deep dive into the reliability of the New Testament. Sounds awesome. Yeah. So uh, Steve gave his uh, fruit snacks on a three-part series of the reliability of the New Testament, Uh, talked a lot about uh, the actual manuscripts themselves, uh, went into a deep dive on kind of the variants, uh, as well as talking about those two really big differences of whether things are meaningful or viable. So I thought we'd kind of dig a little bit deeper into that. Um, If there's anything specifically you wanted to uh, maybe expand on or recap on, uh, I'll give you the floor for a minute, Steve. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, I think just as a a quick recap of the fruit snacks, more or less what we went over is that the, the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is incredibly strong and... We don't often, or maybe maybe we don't, but we should think of the New Testament or the Bible as a whole as a collection of ancient historical documents, or at least that's one way that we should think about it. Obviously, that's not the only way that we think about it, but when you're looking at ancient documents, one of the ways that we test to see how reliable they are is we look to manuscripts. We look to see... You know, do we have do we have multiple copies of this document and do they all say the same thing or or very close to the same thing? And then furthermore, how close to when we think the originals were written, do we actually have these manuscripts? So the closer that you can get to the originals, the better, because there's less time for variations and changes both intentional and accidental to be introduced to the text. And so the closer you can get to the originals and the more copies of those closer documents you have, the more confident you can be that we have what was written. It's one of those things that kind of surprises people. Not only do we not have any of the originals of the New Testament manuscripts, we have no originals of any document from antiquity. And a big part of that is that documents from that era were written on things like animal skins or papyrus or uh, clay tablets or things like that. And, And these are all natural or pretty lightly processed materials. And so as they're carried, as they're rolled up and unrolled repeatedly so that they can be read and studied and so on and so forth, they just they degrade over time or they are lost in accidents or fires, or they get wet, or they get dropped, or you know all these different reasons. But we don't have any originals from ancient writings, and that's not really a problem for the New Testament because we have an overwhelming number of manuscripts, especially compared to any other ancient document from not only the time period, but even, 
even further back in history. There's just nothing quite like the manuscript evidence we have. We have an embarrassment of riches. And from that, because you have a lot of manuscripts, that means you're going to end up just de facto with a ton more variance between those manuscripts because every difference in spelling, every change in word order, even if nothing essential is changed is going to count as a variant. And if you have thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts, those the number of variants you have is going to pile up. But that number alone can be scary if you don't have context for what a variant is and that the vast majority of them just honestly don't don't matter. They're they're nothing that any scholar would would bat an eye at because it it changes nothing. As I said, a, a difference in spelling does is John spelled with with one N or two Ns in the Greek? Does it matter? We both we all know that we're talking about John here, right? And that's the kind of stuff that the the overwhelming majority of uh, differences in manuscripts in the New Testament manuscripts anyway are. And so, just reviewed kind of the difference, uh, the different kinds of textual variants that are out there, and looked at some examples of of those hopefully to give believers confidence that what we have is very reliable and that when you go to church on Sunday and you read your Bible, you can be very confident that what you're reading is within tenths of 1% of what was originally written. And where it isn't, we know where it isn't. And those things get pointed out. And so there's no, there's no doubts about what we're supposed to have and there's no problem passages that are sneaking into people's study or bibles that are that, that are errant that don't belong there so yeah that's good and in fact i want to just kind of piggyback off that as one of the the questions i wanted to bring up and you know i know over the years i've heard this myself um but i know i'm sure many others have as well but one of the big things people bring up when they talk about the bible is oh there are you know thousands of contradictions Right? And they maybe conflate these variants and you know these typos or whatever as contradictions themselves. Uh, what would your response be to someone who comes at you with, "Hey, there's just so many contradictions." So yeah, and that's a that's certainly a question that comes up a lot in uh, circles where people are trying to throw shade on the Bible or, or cast it out. It usually comes up in college courses, <laughs> freshman college courses, but. The first question I would ask someone who says that there's just so many contradictions in the Bible that it can't be reliable is I would hand them a Bible or pull open my Bible app and I would hand them my phone and I would ask them to show me one mm -hmm. of them, you know, and, and what I have heard from other people who've done this and, and, you know, tended to find is that when you ask people to produce an example or examples of specific Bible contradictions, those same folks tend to have a really hard time. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that they can never do it. Of course they can. But that to say, to make a claim like there's just so many or there's hundreds or there's thousands of contradictions, I would just say, well, prove it. Like, right. Show me what you're talking about because I can't. I can't do anything about a claim that's very vague. Mm -hmm. You got to give me specifics. If you give me specifics, then we can look at that passage 
and we can talk about it and we can discuss whether it's a contradiction or whether maybe there's something else going on in the text. But to just throw this vague general claim out there, it's really hard to refute because it's it's not specific. And so the first thing I would do is ask for specifics. If someone does come up with a specific contradiction, and I think we mentioned, I think I've mentioned this one on a previous episode of the podcast, but uh, the question of how many angels were there at the tomb, uh, Jesus's tomb, right? Was there one angel? Were there two? Certain certain gospels differ in the number. One of the things that we can look to that answers the overwhelming majority of alleged Bible contradictions is actually understanding the genre of the gospels of, of really the new Testament, but specifically the gospels that they are best understood as scholars have looked at this and studied the culture and the history that, that the best genre categorically for what the gospels are is known as a Greco Roman uh, bioi or a biography and that genre of literature has specific patterns and uh, literary conventions that it follows as opposed to different genres like poetry or narrative or apocalyptic literature like what you'd find in uh, the book of Daniel or Revelation. Biography had certain certain things, certain hallmarks of it, and all four Gospels very squarely fall into that category. And when you look at other ancient biographies, as Mike Lacona did in his book, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? He looks at examples of Greco-Roman biographies, and he starts to uncover that there are certain conventions that ancient writers used which were perfectly acceptable in the culture and in the day that we wouldn't consider acceptable by today's standards because we strive for a certain level of uh, accuracy and chronology in our history and that simply wasn't as important to them. So for instance, ancient writers had full liberty to rearrange the chronology of events in order to make a larger point or to arrange the story in the order that made a bigger impact on the reader. They could take the words of someone and they could assign them to someone else. So for instance, if you had a a governor and the servant of that governor was sent on an errand to deliver a message to someone else, sometimes the writers of ancient biographies would just right, that the governor said this to this other person, even if the governor wasn't even in the room because he'd sent a servant, an emissary. But because that person was representing the governor, you might as well say that the governor said it because it's effectively the same thing in their minds. And so they would equivocate between the speaker. They would spotlight certain people uh, to make them sort of the more, more the protagonist or the main character. And if they felt like a scene was just too busy, they would cut people out of the scene in order to sort of simplify it and to get to the point. And so in the case of the angels, we see several of these well-known and established literary conventions at work where in reality, there probably were two angels, but certain gospel writers just basically remove the clutter because it allows them to make the point that they want to make 
faster and easier. And no one in that day and age would have batted an eye at that. It just doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. And the fact that we as moderns would look back at that and get offended that their history isn't accurate, frankly, is just imposing our modern standards and our modern expectations for history and how it's done on a culture and a people and a writer that it just doesn't belong there. We need to judge them by their standards of accuracy and uh, coherency, not ours. And when we do, we find that the vast majority of supposed Bible contradictions just, they just evaporate. Yeah. Another perspective that I liked was uh, Jay Warner Wallace when he talks about, you know, treating it like a a homicide uh, scene and how when you collect the evidence of, of your witnesses, right. And a lot of these, you have your, your, your testimonies of, you know, the apostles or whatever, and, you know, their firsthand account isn't going to line up identically to another person's firsthand account. Sure. Right. I might say, you know, there's three of us, you know, in the room where maybe I forgot someone where you might remember there was actually four of us in the room when something happened. Right. And so, you know, having that perspective on, you know, what does a, a first person testimony look like yeah. compared to, you know, I mean, it would look a lot worse if you had someone comparing notes and saying, well, they said there's four. So, okay, I'm going to write in four and, you know, let me just copy your notes. I'm going to yep. write it down exactly as you said it. it. Exactly. And you're totally right, dude, because as, as Jay Warner points out that as a detective, if you're interviewing witnesses who all were there and you know, they were there, you expect there to be differences in their testimony because they're all approaching it from their own perspective. And as he wrote in one of his books, when everyone is telling an identical story, you actually start to you actually start to suspect collusion. Right. And because that's not how memory works, that's not how eyewitness accounts work. Based on someone who takes eyewitness testimony and conducts those field interviews right after a crime has been committed, and he expects there to be differences. What what would be a deal breaker is if there's a, a directly contrary accounts of what happened oh this guy was the one who pulled the trigger and no it was it wasn't that guy it was this girl over here well okay now we have conflicting reports but if if they're both saying that the same guy pulled the trigger but one remembers three shots and the other one only remembers two Mm -hmm. that's not a deal breaker right that's not no one is gonna look at them and say oh i bet one of them's lying no there are just differences in how people remember the same event and those differences are actually a clue to the authenticity of their uh, eyewitness reports as long as they don't diverge from the core details and as long as they're not you know contradicting one another yeah and i would say you know you could when you're looking at that you can still kind of piece that into the variant category of you know was this meaningful and is it viable and, right. you know, be able to come to the conclusion, okay, you know, maybe there was two people, maybe there was three people, you know, it doesn't really change the outcome of what maybe this passage says or exactly. whatever it might be. Yeah. But the passages where you see Jesus is speaking there, he's saying the same thing, right? Right. He's not saying one message and then turning around and refuting or contradicting or even saying something different right. in a different gospel. They get, they all get Jesus right. And they all get Jesus consistently right, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's the same in all four gospels, who he is, where he came from, what he came to do, 
and how it all went down are identical. (laughs) They're identical. And so I think we can say like, we're looking at consistent accounts, even Mm -hmm. if there's differences in details, which is just part of eyewitness accounts. Like I said, it's more authentic that way. A hundred percent. Cool. Well, one of the other things I want to talk about is, you know, when you talk about the amount of manuscripts, you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where people, you know, question, okay, well, you know, depending on when you got them, how many you have, uh, when you look at things that are from ancient times that we have documents on, let's compare it to something like Shakespeare. What, what, what's the comparison as far as documentation that we have for that versus, you know, the Bible and yet we also look at Shakespeare and some of these other ancient documents is true. So Shakespeare would be kind of a different animal in large part because it was written so much more recently Mm -hmm. with Shakespeare. You're looking at, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years back, but with the, with the Bible or other ancient documents, you're looking at thousands of years. So, I think a, a better compare. So I would say because of that, you're going to have you're going to have a pretty large number of manuscripts of uh, Shakespearean plays, which is to be expected because not nearly as much time has passed. And sure. by the time Shakespeare was around, you're you're very close into uh, the age of the printing press. Mm-hmm. You're into um, just b- books in general um, and the quality of ink and the preservation techniques and just a a lot of things that we kind of take for granted in terms of uh, we don't usually associate the word technology with books but there's a lot of technology that went into books within the last 500 years that have allowed them to to survive substantially longer than anything that kind of came before the printing press so I would say a better comparison would be to look at uh, other Greek writings like the Iliad mm-hmm. or the Odyssey or even the uh, Julius Caesar, or we could even look to other other Roman documents or uh, or Greek historians, people like uh, Pliny or Plutarch people like Josephus, so on and so forth, even though like they're not a hundred percent in the same exact time period, but you're within a few hundred years Mm -hmm. of each other. And what you find, take the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, for example, we have a handful and I mean a handful it's, I can't remember offhand, but it's no more, if memory serves, it's no more than a few dozen manuscripts and it may be even far less than that. I know that there are, a handful of ancient well-known ancient documents where we have one or two copies and that's all we have. And so what we have is basically the, the translations that you read of those in English are based on one or two manuscripts. And we don't know if they're actually the original because we don't have anything to compare them to. And they also, they date to hundreds of years, two, three, four hundred years after when we think the original was written in some cases. And so you have massive time gaps and very, very low amounts of manuscripts. Yeah. So a way to sort of visualize is, and uh, Dan Wallace 
is a New Testament scholar who specializes in the manuscript evidence. He's he's put it uh, before in a in a similar way where he's kind of compared it visually to say if you took a uh, so the one of the best attested ancient manuscripts that isn't the New Testament and you took all the pages and you stacked them up, you'd end up with a pile that's a um, three or four feet high, which is you know that's not nothing. Um, that's a lot of pages that right. we have. But if you were to take the New Testament and you were to take all the pages of all the manuscripts and you were to stack them on top of each other, you would have you'd have a stack that's well over a mile, perhaps even miles and miles high. And it's just it's absurd. And this is pre <laughs> pre printing press. Yes, this, this is, is pre printing press. And as I said, this isn't all uh, in in the fruit snacks. This isn't all in the same language that sure. we think the originals were produced in. There's there's really no reason to think that they weren't written in Greek because Greek is the language that everyone spoke. Mm-hmm. Most of the gospels are I mean they're 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 written for the purpose of spreading the the message of Jesus and the the story of Jesus to the world, to Gentiles. So Greek is the language that makes the most sense. If you're if uh, there's really not any good reason to think that they would have originally been written in Hebrew or Aramaic or anything else when, when almost no one in the ancient world would have been able to read them that way. So the, all the manuscripts that we have, all the oldest manuscripts we have, and some of them are very close within decades of the originals, um, they're all in Greek. So there's really no reason to think that that was never not the case. Mm-hmm. And so we have about... 5,000-ish or so. I'm rough, rough estimates. It's more than that. But so let's just round it down to say around 5,000 manuscripts in Greek. We have um, about 10,000 or so manuscripts in Latin, which was the language that sort of the language of Rome and what became the language of the Catholic Church, but again, originated with Rome. And then we have about 5,000 or so other manuscripts, give or take, in um, other other languages, early translations, uh, things like Coptic and, and that. So when you put all that together, we've got tens of thousands of manuscripts for the New Testament, and we can, we can compare them, we can translate across them, we can see just how much they differ, and what scholars have found is that we're, we know within with over 99% and change certainty that this is what the original said. Because when you compare all of it and then you rule out all the variants that have zero impact, um, that's what you're left with. Yeah, no, that's great. And I mean, you look at that, you compare the fact that, you know, not only do we have, you know, I think you mentioned like 2.6 million pages just in Greek alone. Yeah. Right. And then you're looking at these tens of thousands of manuscripts and some of them being as early as just a few decades after the events that these you know took place. I mean, the accuracy of that and then you compare that to other documents of, you know, similar time periods, like you were saying, where you have just a handful or maybe a couple dozen. It's just astronomically different. It's kind of hard not to to look at that and say, OK, I think we have the reliability, you know, checked off we, we we know we're good you know we we kind of eliminate the idea of contradictions right 
So I, I just looked up a couple notes that I had banked on my phone from when I was uh, doing some research, reading some of Dan Wallace's stuff for this. So this is a, a little bit of a comparison here is that, as we said, we have about uh, two and a half million pages, 2.6 million pages of text for the New Testament when you put all the manuscripts together. And so when you run that out, across all the manuscripts that means that the average greek new testament manuscript is about 450 pages which is that's a lot that's quite a lot and the manuscripts for other documents that we have sometimes are a handful of pages these come from a few centuries after the new testament but we did i did some fruit snacks episodes on the so-called lost gospels, the Gnostic gospels from the second, third and fourth century. And some of those are just a a few pages, maybe a a couple dozen pages at most when you look at something like the gospel of truth. But then some of these are just uh, uh, less than 10 pages and that's, that's it. That's the whole thing. And we might have, if we're lucky, you know, five or six copies of that. um, and, And none of them are entirely complete in most cases and sometimes we just have one manuscript and so in the case of like the gospel of mary uh the the manuscript in english if you read it it picks up on page seven because we have one manuscript and we don't have the first six pages of that manuscript (laughs) so there's nothing to compare it to so when you look at that that the average new testament manuscript is about 450 pages and we've got millions of pages total to go through that's when it starts to put variance in perspective and variance sound like a scary thing until you start to realize why there's so many variants is because there's so many manuscripts mm-hmm. and then it's really not, it's really not a big deal. Right. And then you also have the ability to use those manuscripts to cross check the other manuscripts, which, you know, allows you to take those variants and really kind of wash them away. Yeah. And that's the thing there, there are no, there are no two New Testament manuscripts that are 100% identical. Right. There's going to be some difference, some variant between any two manuscripts that you pick. And like we talked about in the fruit snacks, you just have to understand what variant, what counts as a variant. And then you can start to realize that, well, if that's, if that kind of stuff is what makes a, a variant in the text, then we're not talking about some bombshell that, you know, mm-hmm. Dan Brown says the church kept hidden that like, you know, the text says that, that Jesus died for your sins, but actually there's another older text that says, no, he didn't, you know, like that's, it's nothing like that. It's like, is John spelled with one N or two N's, right? You know, or is it Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? Right. Oh no. Oh no. What are we talking about now? Right. I know it's, it's just, it's (laughs) the simple stuff like that. And everyone knows what to do with that stuff. It doesn't change anything. Right. So. This is just evidence that people make really bad printing presses. <laughs> why it was such a big deal when we finally got the. Well, that's the, the thing, press. dude, and and this is where and this could be a whole other thing is that ancient uh, this the the it was both science and art of mm-hmm. being a scribe. Mm-hmm. These guys were incredible. They were incredible, and the the amount of stringency that they would go through. I know just a handful of like factoids about scribes, but it was a profession 
and you had to apprentice in it for years and years and years before you were considered uh, worthy of actually doing a text. And some of these guys, if they were part of like the Masoretic tradition and they were they were Jewish scribes who were copying scripture, they would they would ceremonially, you know, bathe and they would become cleansed before the process started. And then at that point, once they began, they were not allowed to be interrupted for any reason. They would just they would start until they chose to stop for the day and that was that was it you couldn't couldn't throw off the emperor's groove <laughs> but the the rules that they had like for instance if at any point they made any error accidental or otherwise where they skipped a word or they um they they misspelled a letter or they they just had a a scribble right where it, it just wasn't exact uh Either they, if they caught it, but they also had proofreaders who every page that was written was was proofed by multiple other people. If there was anything that was caught on that page that wasn't right, they started over. And so, yes, there's there's inevitably there's still stuff that gets through. I work I work at a company where we we do creative work and we proof the heck out of our stuff, and it goes to the client, and the client loves it, and hundreds or thousands sometimes participants see it and then you come back to it and you look at it six months later and you're like good grief how did all these grammar errors get through and no one saw them right and so that happens there's still always errors and things that can slip through Mm -hmm. but nothing nothing intentional nothing glaring nothing that that would get through a proofing process it wasn't like the first draft got published uh far from it so it's an interesting topic yeah that's great well, I think that that covers everything that I wanted to talk about. Is there anything on this topic that you would like to to maybe end with? I would just want to encourage people once more, if I have the opportunity to do so, that textual variance and just this idea that we don't have the original New Testament locked away in a vault somewhere or that there are manuscripts where one manuscript says uh, says something slightly different than another manuscript and that people look at all this and they put their heads together with a committee of other people and they, they basically uh, do their best to arrive at a consensus on what the original said and what the best way of conveying that is in another, in another language. I'm talking about language scholars and, and, translation committees for English Bibles, um, that can, that can rock some people's worlds. If you've never had that thought before and you've never considered that the Bible didn't just, uh, arrive in a beam of light from on high in, you know, um, on somebody's desk and there it was in all its glory. That's not how scripture has come about inspiration as Dr. Mike Heiser likes to say, is a process, not an event. And it is not a way of thinking about inspiration, though, that many Christians have maybe had to do before. That said, it doesn't need to be scary, and there's honestly nothing about it that should scare you. Um, In fact, the more evidence we have, and like there, the more manuscripts we discover, and we are discovering more all the time, 
all it does is just put more dirt on top of this huge pile, this overwhelming mound of evidence that just says that the New Testament is, it's ironclad, it's reliable, and we have so many reasons to think that what we're reading and studying uh, in church, in our small groups uh, as Christians is reliable and it's accurate and it's it's what God intended for us to have. So anyway, I hope that you found this discussion encouraging and I hope it encourages you to do some more reading and and dig in and maybe become a scholar of the New Testament and its manuscripts on your own. So book recommendations, as we've mentioned uh, in various podcasts, the first one I'll give you is the one I mentioned on this, which is Why Are There Differences in the Gospels by Mike Lacona. Another one that you could look at is Questioning the Bible by Jonathan Morrow. That doesn't exclusively have to do with Uh, textual criticism or the manuscript evidence, but there's a lot of good stuff in there about that particular thing. And then you're going to get a lot of bonus questions in there as well that have to do with uh, so-called problem passages within the Bible. So those are two good ones to start with. Neither of them are a particularly hard read, although I'll say that uh, Lacona's book is certainly much more academic. Uh, So if you're looking for something that's a pretty breezy read, I'd say Get, uh, get Jonathan Morrow's book, Questioning the Bible. It's a, it's a solid resource to have. So thanks for listening. And we are just excited that you're here with us, that you've joined us for this journey that we're on. And just want to wish you all the best. Can't wait to see you next time on the Rooted Podcast. Yeah, thanks for listening. God bless. Thanks for joining us on the Rooted Podcast, a creation of Rooted Productions and an affiliate of the Oasis Church in Gilbert, Arizona. For more information about the podcast or to submit a question or comment, please visit us at rooted.productions. Follow us on Instagram at rooted.productions or email podcast at rooted.productions. That's Rooted.Productions. We hope you'll join us next time.